Totally Football Show. Today brought to you by the letters W, T and F after a midweek that saw more shocks than a French confectioner. Bournemouth stunning Chelsea. Burnley shocking Man United. Newcastle spending money. We round up all the week's developments, get the news from abroad and of course the latest news from our transfer ticker on deadline day. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Totally Football Show. Today brought to you by the letters W, T and F after a midweek that saw more shocks than a French confectioner. Bournemouth stunning Chelsea. Burnley shocking Man United. Newcastle spending money. We round up all the week's developments, get the news from abroad and of course the latest news from our transfer ticker on deadline day. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey ho listener and thanks for joining us. By us, I mean James Horncastle. Hi, James. Mr. Statman Duncan Alexander. Hi, James. Hi, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. No, here, just... It's trepidation that I'm reading there, but that, ladies and gentlemen, is our very own crack monsieur, Julien Laurent. Hello, James. Were you celebrating International Croissant Day recently, Julien? It's our producer, Ben, who told me it was... Uh, when was Ben, when was yesterday? International Croissant Day? It was Wednesday. Wednesday. Is that a national holiday in France? No, it's not. I mean, it's every, every day, day in France is a national croissant day. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, was an ex- it was a great day for you, uh, Jules. Breakfast pastries aside, you said it was one of the greatest evenings of football you've ever watched. Yes, I thought uh, Wednesday night was just incredible, not just in the Premier League, but I think all around Europe with uh, the result in the Coppa d'Italia, for example, Juve losing at Atalanta, the yeah. Fiorentina-Roma, incredible game, the, uh, the Coppa del Rey with Barcelona. Yeah winning 6-1 against Sevilla and some of the goals were, were incredible. The, the tribute for Emiliano Sala in the Nantes against Saint-Étienne game in France mm. and obviously everything that happened in the Premier League as well, the, the Bournemouth resort, the, the Liverpool resort. So I thought it was a, an incredible night of football. Yeah, confusing. A disturbingly complex midweek picture. I, I'm struggling with it. Duncan, should we start with the epicentre of the midweek madness, the, the eye of the game week 24 storm, Newcastle? Tuesday night, they take on a Man City team who've won their last six games, 28 goals to nil. <laughs> a Man City side who go 1-0 up, 24 seconds into the match. The grass was the right length, Fernandinho was playing, and yet Man City still lost. Why? How? Well, they lost 2-1 because they let in two goals. Newcastle scored, but they're only two shots on target. Right. Um, City seem to be in this sort of spell where they either smash teams by a lot of goals or they suffer some weird sort of luck. So the Crystal Palace game uh, before Christmas, they could have, you know, they could have easily won that, but they didn't. Um, you know, they've actually lost games this season from being ahead three times, which is the most in a Premier League season since 2008-09. So, for City? Yeah, for City. So it's very much a case of, um, you know, luck plays its part in a season and, and it's sort of going against the machine. Is it, was it luck or was it a superbly classic Benitez performance? Though, an organised team built to, to frustrate and then and then catch out a, a, a more gloried opponent? I'm not, sh- I'm not really sure. No? I thought it's more City that lost the game than Newcastle who won it. They deserve credit for, you know, still fighting after going one goal down so early and... and and putting them under pressure. We saw the, the penalty, for example, where Fernandinho shouldn't lose the ball where he did, but he did because of the pressure that the Newcastle players put on him. So well, And also, um, they had a warning uh, in the first half when Danilo yeah. um, get done by Ozzy Perez and he flashed his shot across the goal, missed. And then I thought Danilo played Fernandinho into trouble uh, for that penalty. So I, I thought he had a particularly poor poor display on the night uh, in that position yeah and he did, he did a mistake like that against Lyon in the Champions League for example at the Etihad when they lost when he lost the ball and then, and then Lyon scored straight after so mm. I think there's as, as key as he's been for them this season he is also prone to mistakes okay. and, and I just thought City was sloppy and they've lost already more points than the whole of last season for example which shows that they're not as good as they were last season I mean it was a yeah. record season for them last year to yeah, be fair yeah. still not they as, can't reach 100 points is not yeah. the world's biggest crisis but I mean there were a few things in that game so they're definitely missing Benjamin Mendy all right. their defeats this season have but, come when he hasn't but, played but Newcastle don't have Benjamin Mendy either uh, they've got who've they got uh, Isaac Hayden and, and Sean Longstaff in in midfield against you know the, the incredible array of talents and they managed to shut them down. Yeah, I thought Longstaff in in, in particular had a, another good game. Who's you know what come in uh, for the last three games yeah. and has performed 
admirably for them when they've needed players like him to step up because, you know, until what deadline day, the last few days of the transfer window, Newcastle have done very little. Um, so I, I think, you know, that again, it's encouraging. It's just, it felt very, I'm not going to say old school city, but in terms of Newcastle, who've for the most part of the season struggled at home, struggled for goals with a very spirited second half performance where they seem to get more players supporting their, their counter-attacks. You know, not only the Geordie's very happy about it, but uh, Rafa Benitez, his old uh, club, Liverpool. Right. Who, uh, you know, again... Give us, give us a stat, Duncan. Yeah, six of the 16 points City have dropped this season have been to uh, former Liverpool managers. So, so, what, Roy Hodgson and... Uh... Roy Hodgson and Rafa Benitez, who are held in equal esteem at Anfield. I'm <laughs> <led> to believe. <laughs> well, City was 76% possession. In this game, 12 shots, only four on target though, uh, and just two, as you mentioned, for Newcastle, both going in. A, a fantastic performance for them. They leap up to uh, 14th, the Magpies. They're now five points clear of the drop. And meantime, in further surprising news on Tyneside, Mike Ashley has actually spent some money. Uh, and there might be more signings on the way on this deadline day, but so far the big news is Miguel Amiron arriving from Atlanta. Fabulous scenes on Five Live when Danny Mills was asked his opinion of the, uh, he rates of the move. Him. He rates him highly. Yeah. I've never really heard of him, in all honesty. It's not that stellar signing you know he's going to score goals. He's very much an unknown. Just to kind of underline, Amaron was basically the player of the year for the MLS champions <laughs> yeah, uh, last year. And the hot, the breakout star of, of the last season in yeah, MLS. Dub- double figures in goals and assists. Yeah. But, you know, he's not that stellar a signing. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be speaking, uh, hopefully, to somebody who does know all about Amaron. <laughs> and Hotlanta very shortly. Uh, right now, though, let's talk about what happened then on Wednesday because the damage was limited for Man City of their defeat by the fact that Leicester went and held Liverpool to a draw at Anfield. Claude Puel, Jules, was he like this in France as well? Yeah, he usually did quite well in big games. It's more surprising to see them than playing so well against the big boys and then struggling a bit more against um, you know, smaller teams, losing at home to Cardiff, for example, days after beating City or beating Chelsea, one of the two. It's pretty incredible. And yet, I thought again yesterday, he got his game plan pretty, pretty good. I thought they were the, in the second half the better side by far. And I think they could have won the game and there would have, wouldn't have been much debate either. People still talk about Puel as being two games from the side. Is that, that's nonsense, surely, no? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't believe it. He, he, he hears and he reads and he, you know, he knows that people are saying that he's close. But he says that since the, even before the season started, yeah. people were saying, oh, he's not, he's not going to start the season, or he's only going to last two games, or four games, or six games, etc. And he's still there. And I think I might be a bit biased, but I think he's doing a pretty good job, especially in those games against the, the big boys. Absolutely. And, and I think some of the criticism is maybe a bit deserved because he can come across as not the easiest to work with and I know some of the players it's great to listen to no but it's not his language to start with you know it's like yeah but Jules I mean you know I'd, I'd prefer listening to you in post-match you know, true so. but I've been here longer than him yeah. and, and I think he spent a lot of time on the football pitch more than in a classroom learning English which might be an issue I don't think his grasp of English is, is the question it's his it's charisma yeah yeah but well, that's not what he's paid for no and I think he would rather be a very good coach without charisma than be an average coach with charisma all right, charisma. Where does he know? Is he in Turkey or not? Charisma, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so let's talk about this game at Anfield. Then a one-one draw. A lot of Liverpool fans saying that this was evidence that the the, the transfer policy with Nathaniel Klein and particularly Coutinho, uh, who, who's been gone a while now, their absence has been was keenly felt in this match. Or well, a player um, like that, someone who can unlock a team like Leicester. I mean, I, I suppose they wouldn't have been able to afford Virgil van Dijk had they not sold Philippe Coutinho. Well, there you and are. He's the, if you were to identify a player who's got them in this title race, and uh, he is the one. Um, I suppose what's quite surprising about this game is that on the eve of the game, there were doubts about uh, van Dijk's, uh, whether he was going to play or not. And he did, and yet they still looked quite nervy in, in, in defence, even though you thought they might be liberated by the fact that City had lost. See, this is a big opportunity. And instead, as, as, as Julian said, Leicester um, could have scored easily more than one goal. I mean, James Madison seemed surprised when that ball came across to him and looked to head it back across goal rather than um, towards Allison. 
Uh, Firmino almost scored an own goal, was ba- uh, bailed out by his goalkeeper again there. Uh, and they seem to really cause um, Liverpool problems from from set pieces. But yeah, I mean, you, you look at you look at some of the abs- you look at the team that Klopp uh, put out again. So Jordan Henderson playing at right back, um, that seemed to be a, a quite awkward fit. Um, that's that's the one I don't. Fabinho has played years at right back and really well to the point that he could have easily been called up for Brazil to play a right back. Yeah, well, and his day is on the bench. Uh, Jedra was saying that, that he does. I don't play think he's yeah, yeah. fit enough to play the whole game though. That was the issue with was Fabinho. It? Yeah, I don't know. We there was that. But we were having a chat on Tuesday about the pressure on. Liverpool from the 29-year wait and how it it got to them last time five years ago they came came close to to actually landing the title was that what we saw on on Wednesday night the nerves the pressure I don't think so I think Liverpool had a lot of these games this season like away at Watford where they just can't really seem to get going Um, I think the conditions played quite a big part last night Mm. Um, we uh, James mentioned Van Dijk and looking a bit tentative and they didn't really seem to get their passing they didn't really be able to seem to judge how to pass the ball in the conditions the ball was holding up in the kind of icy weird snow grass thing Um, Alisson was playing some kind of risky passes at numerous times and they just they obviously they took the lead really early but a bit like City the previous night they kind of just sat back really and didn't really build on that I see five points then the gap so they've actually gained on City I mean yeah. big picture I mean yeah. I think that's that, that's the positive mm. um, although you know it's in the heat of the moment it is often this feels like more of a missed opportunity rather than you know actually extending a lead on on a very very formidable title Rival, absolutely. City, uh, the title rival, who have a very tough seven days ahead of them in, in the next week. Arsenal, uh, then they're away at Everton on the Wednesday, special midweek fixture for them, and then they've got Chelsea coming on on Sunday. What kind of Chelsea will be arriving is is, is a subject we'll touch on in in a bit. Liverpool, meanwhile, uh, next weekend they're at home to Bournemouth. This Monday they are away at West Ham. West Ham now officially a, a crisis club, I think. Are they not? They've lost their last three. Uh, they had that disastrous defeat uh, to the Dons, mm-hmm. and now they've gone and lost three nil at uh, Wolves. Andy Robinson says uh, West Ham's xG against Wolves is it the lowest ever in the Premier League? Uh, Duncan, it's zero point one six. It's not the lowest. I've seen lower, but they didn't have a shot on target. Um, and having persuaded or done whatever to Anatovic to to get him to not leave, he mm. then left the left the ground on crutches. So Andy Carroll Claxon, because yeah. seven years on from his ill-fated move to uh, to Anfield, he could he could be leading the line for the Hammers. He could. I mean, Liverpool have been very very good recently against uh, West Ham. They scored four goals in each of their last four Premier League games against them. So um, you'd imagine they would be up for this one on Monday. But as we saw this week, uh, the pressure might be on. Yeah. That's so true. The worrying thing for West Ham is that they lost what three nil. And their best player was Lucas Fabianski, the goalkeeper. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Wolves, uh, I mean, Alistair Mann isn't the kind of commentator who gets excited and and sort of uh, carried away with things. But the number of times he said that Wolves have battered West Ham, uh, that kind of stayed with me as I went to bed last night. (laughs) Will they be batter, James, against Liverpool? We'll see on Monday. Uh, Meantime... Man City on Sunday will be uh, aiming to claw back some of that massive five-point margin when they welcome Arsenal. What's going to happen there? Hang on, listener. We'll talk about that after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. City, Arsenal, Sunday at the Etihad. It's on, Jules. 2-0 to City at the Emirates way back on the opening day of the season. And uh, ooh, City have got a bit of a, a record against Gunners, haven't they? they? Put three past them on each of their previous three games to that. Yeah, mm. it would be tough for Arsenal. No, no Socrates, no Koscielny, for example, at the back, still no holding. Mm. So a makeshift defence once again, no Bellerin either. Mm. So defensively, you have, to, you, know, you have to worry a bit about Arsenal. Going forwards, I think Arsenal are capable of scoring against anyone, even at City. But defensively, it, it would be a tough task. And and I think, again, I, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but you wouldn't want to face City after the, the, the result they had against Newcastle because... Wounded Lions. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Mm. I know it's a bit cliche, but it's, no, it's no. true. You know, they're back at home and you could expect Pep to have had a week where he was clearly not happy. Yeah, also this month marked four years since Arsenal last won an away game at a big six team. So that's that away good. at City? 
Um, Coquelin game. The Santi yeah. Cazorla game. Yeah. Where Santi yeah, was so good. 2-0. Yeah. Do those well. stats still apply in a, in a new Emery paradigm? Um, I think so, because yeah, they've okay. done it this season. I mean, the last, yeah. the most recent one was away at Liverpool at Christmas. That mm. didn't go too well, did it? No, so. I thought it was quite telling what Warnock said about Cardiff after they lost to Arsenal uh, in midweek. He was quite critical of his players in terms of that. If, look, if we had Arsenal's players with the chances that we had, mm. we would have won this game. They made naive mistakes, particularly on, on the penalty, um, which, you know, as Jules was alluding to, in terms of the injuries that they've got at the back... Clearly, I think a you know better side than Cardiff would have taken advantage of that. Yeah, and, well, they had City, nineteen shots, and and nineteen shots for City's players would probably result in a very different scoreline. Yes, yeah, I would think so. Okay, uh, that two-one win for Arsenal means that they've moved into fourth place now, in a very tight-looking race for Champions League positions. Uh, Man United's draw and Chelsea getting their annual beating from Bournemouth means that it's now Arsenal, as I say, in fourth ahead of Chelsea on goal difference with United two points behind. Let's talk about then one of the highlights of the week at the Vitality Stadium. Some absolutely stunning scenes, not least from Jonathan Pearce. Comes a free kick. Oh, it's in, it's four! It's Charlie Daniels! Fire in the mountain, run, boy, run! The devil's in the house of the Bournemouth Sun! It's Charlie Daniels! Yeah, that actually happened, listener. <laughs> That was so. Charlie Daniels scores the fourth goal for the Cherries, and uh, Jonathan busts out the Charlie Daniels band with uh, "The Devil Went Down to Georgia." How many times did you did you rewind that to check it had actually taken place, James? Yeah, I thought I was hallucinating uh, when when that happened. It, I've rewound it several times. It gets better every time. A man who who's been in the Sopranos as well, so definitely a checkered career. Sorry, Jonathan really? Pierce was in The Sopranos. He's listed as a uh, in on IMDb because uh, AJ watches Robot Wars at one point. And you can hear Jonathan <laughs> Pierce. Wow, so kill a lot. Hi. Yeah. All right. What well, a great performance from Jonathan, and also pretty good from Eddie Howe's Cherries, uh, who followed his. He said his game plan was to keep it tight in the centre, let Chelsea push forward through, you know, to try and break through and then pick them off and, and that worked to a tee. Yeah, Callum Wilson though being there as well for Bournemouth, arguably their, their best player. I think the the David Brooks dirty work on Jorginho was was put, not it's not genius from Eddie Howe, you know, I think Marco Silva did it with Everton a lot. So Brooks, aside from being really, really valuable in terms of assists and goals, with he, the ball, yeah. he shut Jorginho down. Yeah, without the ball, that was his job and I, th- and I thought he did that really well. Eddie Howe was very happy and clearly when Jorginho is struggling like the way he did yesterday because he never had the time on the ball or the space or anything to, to put Chelsea's game in place although the first half or the first half hour was pretty good from Chelsea and Jorginho but pound for pound is Brooks the signing of the season or is I he, think he's not far he's from heading it. into that conversation oh, 100% for someone who did really well in the championship last season but who Bournemouth followed literally from the start to the end of that championship season mm. And yet, to be able to reach this level, it's never easy to go from the Championship to the to the Premier League. And I think the way they've developed him and the way he's he worked himself to get to this level, I think is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. A Bournemouth side, I guess, don't feel that much pressure from fans. I mean, they, they've been thanks to a good start, they've been reasonably comfortable through that slump. But it's, but yeah, just they to, seem to have lost every game for about three months. <laughs> yet they're now back in the top half, which is impressive. I mean, how doing what his agents always wanted and taking Arsenal into the top four. But um, I think the key thing he said was to you know when, to not worry about having the ball because um, obviously they won by four goals. Yeah. Only six times in the last 15 years has a team won by four goals and had 35% possession or less. And two of those have been Eddie Howe's Bournemouth. So it's definitely something he knows how to do. Um, and Chelsea came unstuck. That's interesting. Their recent record against big six teams had been absolutely disastrous. They'd lost their last nine, uh, conceding 29 goals and scoring five times. And then here they go and do this 4-0. Is it because they're great and it's all begun to unravel for Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea, James? Well, I think um, if you look at David Brooks's goal, um, I mean, how many opportunities does David Luiz give him uh, to score it because it was a sensational sequence um, where he gives the ball away in the first place. He then kind of goes in two-footed to win it back, doesn't. Um, he then tries to play offside, um, obviously not realising that the ball had come off him and went to Josh King, who then played in Brooks, who turned him inside out and seemed to put the ball through his legs and into the back of the net. 
Um, so I think uh, in that sense, you can't really mitigate for that. Set pieces again seem to be a problem for, for Chelsea. I just think Sarri in his comments afterwards was following the line that he has for, for weeks now, which was criticising the motivation of the players, saying that they haven't learnt the basics of his system um, yet. And until they do, don't expect um, to see Chelsea playing the kind of football that I think a lot of people on social media or whatever got very mm. excited about calling it uh, Sadie Ball. I think, uh, while do, you everyone... think, do you think there's a danger that he might not get that time? You had the fans last night chanting, you don't know what you're doing. He himself is very publicly calling out his players. Second league game in the row, he's done that, keeping them back for an hour. A lot of comment about that in the media. I mean, we compared him to Scolari, jokingly, but they're more or less at the same point. He's they're actually one, They're a point behind where they yeah. were with Scolari. He'd had a blistering start. And three and... points less than with Conte last season at this stage. Right. Higuain had a great debut uh, <laughs> start. <laughs> oh, no. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no shots, no... Uh, just Nothing. Sarri also made a strange comment about hudson Adoy at the end of the game and everyone asked why he wasn't even on the bench. He said, um, we have four wingers, three were in the squad, one, one not. Which was factually correct. But, you know, maybe give him a chance. I am beginning well, I to fear for him. Um, you are, yeah. Yeah, and I think there are mitigating circumstances that you can go back to the start of the season where... You know, he started pre-season late because they couldn't get the um, appointment done. Conte took the first few weeks of pre-season. Uh, they then went off to Australia. Then they came back straight into the Community Shield. So they had no no real time. Top players were at the World Cup, like Eden Hazard. But, sorry, just to my untutored mind, it's strange then that he actually started quite well and things deteriorated once he'd had more time with the club. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say the results were better than the performances. Right. I think the thing with, with Jorginho, while everyone seems to um, be highlighting how easy it is to stop Chelsea because you just stop him mm. um, you know Napoli there was, the team was so much more multifaceted than this Chelsea side in that they, they had their, their attacks that they could build from the left um, they could over, open, they could then send it uh, on the switch to Kayon who because they emphasised so much play on the left he was always free and Jorginho had uh, more time and space on the board not because Serie A is necessarily slower but because they had enough, enough to kind of misdirect the opponents. So Tom Banyo, for example, asking if, if, if Sarri should therefore amend his methods because they don't have footballing fullbacks, they don't have wingers who hold wide mm. positions, they don't have midfielders who can quickly break lines of pressing, uh, he says. Although I, I'm not sure if I'd agree with that last bit. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he, he is going to have to adapt and quickly because the results are simply not, not good enough now. And I, I think what is really telling is, is just how exacerbated a, a number of Chelsea fans are um, you know they've been, I suppose, sold this um, this great ideal that they were going to get an Italian manager in the sort of history and tradition of the club, but who would play football a bit like Guardiola's um, football, and and that has yet to happen. I was watching Italian TV at the time, uh, and because it was the day before transfer deadline day, uh, there were these journalists all in these different restaurants in Milan t- talking to agents and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Antonio Conte pops up. Huh. So they doorstepped uh, Conte and uh, they said, oh, have you seen the Chelsea result tonight? Uh, it's 4-0. And he was like, ah, oh, great. And they're like, no, they lost. <laughs> <laughs> but then he had a. Do you think he lost three nil, didn't he, to to Bournemouth at Watford? Or, yeah. yeah. But Bournemouth always seemed to figure in there. Yeah, I mean, this was Chelsea's worst defeat in the Premier League since 1996. Twenty-two years. Yeah. Oh, 23 actually, maybe not. Well, anyway, around 23, that figure. Yeah. Twenty. Yeah, the, a lot the, of it. The thing that I really struggle is the fact that he he left his staff and John Francozola outside of the dressing room when he had that hour or less than an hour with his players. And I just don't understand why you would why you would do that. What what kind of message that sends to your staff mm. and also to the players? Is it like they don't count, they use less, they 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 don't need to be here with us? The the, the staff won't know what has been said in that dressing room for an hour. Mm. And the players then said, Okay, well, sometimes, you know, players have a special relationship with assistant, for example. We see that with Mike Phelan at United. And and so what does that say about Zola? Does that say that Sari doesn't trust Zola? So it, does it an Hazard has to trust Zola or does he go straight to Sari? And I think that it's adding more problems to the problems you already have by mm. doing that. And I, I just thought of everything that happened to Chelsea last night, that was one of the weirdest things from a manager that I've seen in a very long time. Well, Huddersfield up next for Chelsea, who, as we mentioned, are just outside now the, the top four Spurs, meanwhile... 
now sitting very comfortably seven points clear of that particular battle uh, after their victory against Watford. Uh, Man United, who'd been on that extraordinary run, it finally came to an end. Who would have thought that it would be little <laughs> Burnley who would finally derail the Oli Solskjaer Express mm. type thing? Yeah, it was confusing because last year United came from 2-0 down to draw with Burnley 2-2 at home and it was, you know, cited as a, a sign of Mourinho not being a very good manager and this this time it was, uh, you know, Solskjaer inspiring the players to a famous comeback but essentially the same. What the I same like game. is how Solskjaer continues to, like, tick Fergie United bingo kind of thing in terms of, like, this was this was a... Uh, late the late comeback. <laughs> so, yeah, after, you know, changing the Newcastle game with, with, with substitutes reminiscent of you know himself coming on mm. uh, back in the day. Um, this was again a kind of an, another kind no, of United fans saying that we had waves of attacks. There were so many shots. It's like you were playing Burnley. They've allowed the position four hundred and thirty-eight shots this season. You were going to have a lot. <laughs> there was no shot on target in the first half, which even under Mourinho, yeah, Mourinho happen, the, yeah. the fewest uh, shots on target a Mourinho United team had had at home this season was two, and there was and zero in that first half. But that's credit to to Sean Dyche's Burnley, no. Uh, who picked up 11 points from their last 15 available. They've been transformed mm. of Since late. Since they uh, replaced Joe Hart with Tom Heath. Well, yeah, also Tarkovsky <laughs> came back around about the same time, and I think that that might have been a factor well, in that. But Heaton was very unlucky to not to keep mm. out the equaliser because yeah. he, he kind of saved, saved it twice. Save, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was unfortunate. I know Sean Dyche afterwards was complaining that he, he thought the penalty was a bit soft. I was surprised that got, by that. Yeah. <laughs> but also he thought that Lindelof was maybe a, a touch offside as well for, yeah. for, for the equaliser. Yeah, maybe marginal. Very mm. marginal. Well, uh, as you mentioned, wave after wave of attacks. 28 shots Tom Heaton faced. Only nine actually were on, on, on target. Do you remember those, a couple of, oh, mm. go on, go on. Do you remember a couple of seasons ago um, when Van Gaal was there and United went on this really long sort of 13, 14 game unbeaten run and just never moved out of sixth place? Yeah. It's kind of happening again. Um, they were six when Mourinho left. They're still six. I mean, they've yeah, obviously they closed six the gap. They've closed the gap, from, but it's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's two it's points. Slow now. progress. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well done to Burnley, and uh, despite the fact they only picked up a point, of course, in the good old days, Man United would have been able to win this at the death by unleashing Fellaini, but no longer because oh. he's gone to well a, a, to a Chinese club. Yeah. Do we have a name for the Chinese club? Shandong. Something. Shandong. The one where mm. Graziano Pelle is. Sorry. Where Graziano Pelle is. Oh, Graziano is Pelle is permanently on holiday. Yeah. Uh, he has, yeah, still the highest earning Italian player. Um, he, like, uh, he's, thinks, he's winning at life, Graziano Pelle. Who in China thinks, yeah, my one Fellaini, that's a sexy what? signing, you know, wow, he's going to send shirts. Yeah. Really? Jules. I don't, I don't get that. Do we really? think? I, I like Maran Fellaini. He's recognisable. He's recognisable. Even people who are tactically as a footballer. Yeah, somebody like me, who's tactically kind of tone deaf, can get Fellaini. He's got you a know. unique set of skills. You you understand how he works in football. The elbow of the Arden. Just as United get rid of a very tall icon, Burnley yeah. bring one in because they're bringing. Are we going to do Crouch. transfer talk now? Well, they're bringing Peter Crouch. Let's do transfer talk. Okay, so Peter Crouch is—is is that confirmed now? He's having a medical as we speak. I think. Okay, so he's going from Stoke to Burnley in a move which sees somebody else go Sam down. Sam Vokes. Ah, oh, Sam Vokes. Okay. Do you have a stat about Peter Crouch that might be appropriate at this point? Well, he scored more headed goals than 21 of the 49 Premier League teams to ever play in it. So he himself has he scored. He has. And we thought that that <laughs> dream amazing. was over. He, he, you know, he's now got a chance to he add more. He can improve that ratio. Anyway, well, uh, more transfer talk a little bit later on. Uh, this weekend, Man United will be away to the Leicester Enigma. That's mm. on Sunday. Arsenal, as you mentioned, are at Man City. Spurs, who are now seven points clear of that race for fourth place, are taking on Newcastle at the weekend. Spurs with a 2-1 win against Watford and Sun is back on the score sheet. Lorente on the score sheet as well. Yeah, and uh, they came back from behind in this game. And uh, I think this once again underlines um, Pochettino's value and why uh, he takes the stance he does when it comes to cup competitions. Because uh, ultimately, you mentioned that they're, what, um, seven points clear of uh, of Arsenal in fourth. But they're also now just two points behind Manchester City as well. <gasps> Look, if Llorente's so they're as scoring, close to Arsenal as they are to Liverpool. Yeah, exactly. And if if Llorente started scoring, mm. I mean, definitely Spurs are going to be in the title battle. Yeah, it's going to happen. Okay, well, they are taking on a Newcastle team this weekend that are by no means 
a gimme, as they've just demonstrated against City, and who will be further reinforced, we now hear, by the arrival of Miguel Almiron. To find out a little bit more about what he'll bring to the Magpies, let's dial up Luis Miguel Echegaray, the co-host of Sports Illustrated TV's Planet Football. Miguel Almiron is a young Paraguayan star. He was one of the main factors for Atlanta United in their first season. And of course, we know that Atlanta won and really just took over the league, becoming one of the, if not the best player last two seasons in MLS. Okay, player of the season for the MLS uh, champions. 13 goals last season as well for Almiron. I'm not sure how much you've seen of Newcastle under Benitez, Luis, but how well do you you see him fitting in there? What do you think his impact's going to be on Tyneside? Yeah, no, luckily for you, Jim, I have family in England. I grew up in England. My cousin is a lifelong Newcastle fan. I watch the Premier League every week, so I know Newcastle pretty well. And uh, actually, I think this is perfect for Almiron because... He's not your mesozoal type of creative player. He's not going to move the chains for you as much. What he is going to do is he's going to be able to play either on the left or on the right. He can play in the middle. He can cut inside. He's extremely fast. And he's going. his primary objective is to be very direct, get the ball towards the goal, at least create chances and score. And that's very attractive to Rafa Benitez because they play a counter-attacking system that really just wants to push. And I think he's going to really link really well with Rondon, which is a really good, I think, value there. Listeners, you may think you know the story of how Eric Cantona's kung fu kick at Crystal Palace in 1995 changed the course of Premier League history, but trust us, you won't know the full story until you've read the latest story by Daniel Story. 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United is the full account of that kick at Selhurst Park, his nine-month ban and that infamous seagulls following the trawler press conference. But it's what Cantona did behind the scenes in taking the likes of Beckham, Skulls, the Nevilles and the rest of the class of 92 under his wing that really changed the club's history forever. 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United by Daniel Storey is out now in hardback, ebook and audiobook. Keep listening to the end of the show for an exclusive extract. I hope that's answered all your questions, Julian. Uh, other transfer news that I'm hearing. Dennis Suarez to Arsenal, has that gone through? Yes, uh, today we'll go through, yeah. How, where's he going to play? That's a very good question. Yeah, he's quite a versatile player. Mm. Where do you see him fitting into Emery's lineup? I think he will play wide, so maybe instead of Iwobi. So if you think mm-hmm. about... Right, um, Emery, I think, has, has tweaks and changed tactically quite a lot. So whether you play Ozil just behind Aubameyang and Lacazette, or you play... Like I said, in the center, and right. Aubameyang wide on one side, you can play Suarez on the other side, and whoever then in the center, Ozil, Ramsey, you know, whatever. I think Suarez gives you a few options. So you can play even in the three midfields. So it's, I don't think it's a bad signing. Don't think either it's an incredible signing. Okay. Uh, Batshuayi, who Everton were interested in, looks like he's going to go to West Ham. Uh, he wanted to go to Monaco. They he? wanted a loan. Chelsea yeah. wanted to sell him uh, and wanted quite a lot. I mean, they wanted £35 million for him. So if West Ham are ready to, to pay that, now that Arnautovic got injured as well, I, I still think at 25, he's still a very good player. Mm. Well, I remember the second half of last season at Dortmund. Dortmund yeah. yeah. But then so, if you think about the first half of this season at Valencia... Yeah, I choose not, to ignore that. Yeah. We've got our transfer ticker running. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll update you if anything happens on that or any of those other stories. But if transfers are your sort of thing, listener, you should be aware we've got a special podcast coming down the Totally Football Pipe on Friday in which... Rafa Honigstein will be speaking to sports lawyer Daniel G, whose new book, Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business, is quite literally about football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Would you like a taster? Well, here you go. One of my clients phoned me up and said, Dan, we've got the player that's just landed in the UK. The deal's been concluded in four hours. Can you just have a quick look through the contract? Just make sure everything's all right. And that's the worst in a way. So um, on the beach, in the table, I've got four napkins, all with different clauses. I've got my two phones looking at the clauses of the rep contract and the player contract. And I'm making suggestions to the club secretary on the phone. I've then got the agent on the other phone saying, can we do this, that? And three and a half hours later, um, the deal's done. Thank goodness. Two phone Danny G. Ain't nothing but a G thing. Yeah. Well, if you fancy uh, getting a, a free copy of that, Art of the Deal, 
Uh, no, it's not that deal. It's done deal. <laughs> oh, my God. Done deal. Uh, then uh, keep a lookout on our Twitter and Instagram, the gram, sorry, uh, to find out more because we're all about giving stuff back. Let's talk about the battle at the bottom, Duncan. Mm. I know you want to. I mentioned Newcastle are leaping up to 14th, didn't I? Well done them. There's only one point, though, between them and the next three teams, who are Crystal Palace, Saints and Burnley, and they've got a four-point margin over the three sides in the relegation zone. Cardiff, who are four points from safety. Fulham, who are now only the six, so that's improved. And Huddersfield, where Jan Sivert debuted, going a goal down within his first three minutes in charge of the Terriers and ending with a 1-0 home defeat. They are now with a whopping 12 points to make up if they are to remain in the Premier League. All right, well, the, the big winners, we mentioned Newcastle's victory over Man City on Tuesday, but Fulham, oh. that same night, an extraordinary match <laughs> at Craven Cottage. It was a must-win game for the, the Cottagers, who failed to really show any kind of reaction to Ranieri's uh, arrival at the club, or at least certainly not at the level that I think uh, they were hoping for. A must-win game for them. They immediately concede. Glenn Murray grabs a brace, could have got two or three more probably yeah. uh, in that opening half. And at half-time, as the snow comes tumbling down over Craven Cottage, Ranieri, ashen-faced, trudging off the field. And it, it looks like you know, this is kind of... This is that's it, game over. But he must have done some, he must have given it some serious dilly dong in that in that halftime chat. Oh, most certainly. I think in the second half they completely dominated um, Fulham, even though uh, Brighton had a couple of chances to make it three two. Um, I think uh, you mentioned Glenn Murray. He had that glancing header, which produced a, a really good save. I think David Proper hit the bar. But Fulham also hit the woodwork, yeah. I think, twice, didn't they, as well? Um, Ryan Babel. Vieto, the chances that Vieto had as well. Yeah. But I thought Babel was mm. uh, involved a lot. With it. Is that what's happened here? Is it, is it Babel's arrival that a lot of people were kind of, oh, what they got him for? But he's actually been really dynamic. Yeah. I love his kind of Rodman uh, kind of red hair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he just seems to, in whatever they, whatever chances they create, he seems to be involved. Whether it be putting the ball in or, or certainly being involved in the move um, for them. And uh, yeah, looks to be, looks to be already a quite a good, a good signing for them. Although I think again, um, the expectation was that Ranieri would make um, the defence better. I still think that is problematic, and this this felt. I think still very much like the Fulham at the beginning of the season, which is um, capable of you know throwing the kitchen sink at teams and, mm. and scoring, but um, uh, but not being able to keep them out. But what a blow for Brighton, who have now been kind of sucked in, I suppose. Do you reckon? Well, seven points off the drop. Yeah, but I, you look at um, Newcastle now, just two points behind them. Southampton and Burnley, three points behind them as well. And they're all looking and both Brighton much and, more positive. and Fulham. I think over the previous eight games had had the same record I think they got five points each as well so um, Brighton have got a good run of fixtures coming up now which um, I think if they were to rattle off a few points of them would would pretty much um, keep them up but still it's a little bit nervy I would say right interesting on Tuesday once again we see that 2-0 is the most dangerous scoreline mm, yeah uh, is it on do you think Fulham is this the turning point Duncan um, well we've pointed out before that their remaining home games are very tricky so uh-huh. They need to start winning away. I think that's the big, the big thing. Um, if you remember, I mean, this was the first time they come from two 0 down at half time to win a game since they won three two at Man City in two thousand eight, which was kind of like the centerpiece of their recovery from or avoiding a relegation that season. So Under Roy Hodgson, yeah. Mm. So I think they need to use this as a similar kind of touch point, really, and and move on. But yeah, as James said, the defence still doesn't look great. I guess who they're facing this weekend? Uncle Roy Hodgson. And his Crystal Palace. But there will no there will not be Wilfred St. No, there no. won't. Thanks to James Ward Prowse. <laughs> Celebrating his sending off, it seemed. I thought that was about that he's just Fist bump. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that before. It was like, you know, when a, when um I don't know, a team wins a penalty and they 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 celebrate yeah, that. Yeah. It was a bit a little bit yeah, like that. It was like that. There was a bespectacled ball boy as well who looked so joyous as uh, as Ward Prowse did it. It was you know, it was nice. Well, I did. The, the commentators were a little bit upset. They felt that it was a, it should definitely have been a foul for Zaha. I didn't think the push was that evident. I think it was probably a culmination of other fouls that led to Zaha losing his temper like that. Yeah, and I think 
It's a weird one where sarcastic applause is seen as this complete no-no in football. I mean, you see players get booked and, and swear at the ref in their face, and the yeah. ref's like, go away, go away. And then you applaud, and he's like, well, you've crossed the line here, <laughs> yeah. mate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Alan Shearer said on Match of the Day that Zaha should kind of treat it as a mark of respect, the fact he gets fouled so much. But <laughs> for me, you, yeah, you should probably try and protect those players. He was the most fouled player in that game uh-huh. he's the second most fouled player in the Premier League this season the only player who's been fouled more is Hazard but Hazard's picked up two yellows so Hazard's got six yellows and now one red so I think you know rules aren't possibly being applied um, I like how he sarcastically applauded being booked and then sent off mm. for being for sarcastically applauding as well mm. Yeah, mm. could have been Lot three yellow cards. Yeah. Not not yeah. the worst bit of uh, referee interaction this midweek. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Edin Dzeko later on, who's unlikely to be seeing a football field for a while. So anyway, uh, Fulham taking on Crystal Palace this weekend at Selhurst Park in the Mister Roy Derby, and no Zaha. What does that mean for Palace, Jules? How will they replace all his goals? That's the thing. I mean, Townsend, uh, Jordan Ayew, Benteke, who's not back fit and uh, I guess could start that game. They, they would certainly have to play maybe a different way than, than, than when Zaha is there because when Zaha plays, he, he he's the, the the guy that everyone else is looking for. Every time mm. someone has the ball, the ball has to go to Zaha. The opponents. Yeah. Yeah. He's not just goals, though. I was kind of being ironic when I said... Yeah, but he creates so much. It's mm. not just about the goals. I mean, I know... It, that was his first goal since September, I think Duncan just said. But still, it's more the danger that he, you know, everybody knows when you play against him, the danger that he represents when he's on the ball and all the things that he could create. Okay, sometimes it doesn't lead to much, but at times he could also be almost unstoppable. And I right. think it's obviously a huge loss. There was all this talk that, uh, was it Borussia Dortmund were going to make him their record signing? Not That seems to have gone a bit quiet, but possibly for at the end of the season. What are your thoughts, Duncan? Well, Ranieri's on a really, really bad run away from home, oh. as are Fulham, so it's kind of a, a not perfect combo. But I, I think I fancy Fulham to get something out of this. Yeah? Yeah. All right. So that result was their eighth nil-nil in a row, and we've even had reports of fans falling asleep in their seats. Stuart is at the game, joins us now on the line. Stuart? Stuart? Sounds like Stuart needed Paddy Power, because with our new Same Game Multi, you can combine multiple bets from the same game, so everything is exciting. Plus, you'll get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold Same Game Multi lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match fourfold plus Same Game Multi bets. First qualifying bet only, max free bet £10 per customer per day. Exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, be On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Hello, Jack Tanner. You'd like a mention for Athletic Bilbao and their ladies' team, who had cheapers. They had a Copa del Reina match on Wednesday. And do you know how many uh, fans turned up for it? 49,000. 48,000, which is huge. Uh, it's a record attendance, indeed, for a European female club game. Because the FA Cup final in this country last May got over 45,000, but not quite as much as that. You were... Jules, part of your busy Wednesday, you were all over the um, Copa del Rey, the, the, the men's equivalent in yeah. in Spain, which saw Betis go through and Valencia go through. Real Madrid play tonight, they're 4-2 up against Girona. But Barcelona, who were 2-0 down against Sevilla, had the return leg of that quarterfinal. And what happened? And they won 6-1. It was a fascinating game. Uh, Sevilla missed a penalty. Eva Banega, when they were just 1-0 down, that could have, I guess, maybe changed... A bit the dynamic of the game, but Barca was just so good. Coutinho was so good. Uh, that front three six was goals, so kind of otherworldly. The interplay. Uh, oh, the one, the Messi goal, which is the last yeah. one. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, go and check it out because it's just something from an yeah, like a pure Barca goal. But yeah. the movement, especially the last four passes in the box, one touch pass, it's just fantastic. Mm. And when they're like that, I think they when you see them playing like that, and they, they haven't always played that well this season. But when they're in that kind of form, you think, like, who who can, just who can stop them? Jules, meanwhile, in France, Nantes were playing on Wednesday night. Yeah, against Saint-Étienne for the first time since the, the disappearance of Emiliano Sala. And we all expected a very moving evening. And I think it was even more than than moving. I think Nantes played with a, with a broken heart. All the fans, all the players, there was a lot of tears on the pitch. The game was stopped in the ninth minute, which nine was the, the number... Emiliano had the players were wearing shirts with Salah's name 
in the back for, for all of them. They had T-shirts when they were warming up saying, uh, we love you, Amy. All that kind of stuff, all the banners, all the flowers, all the, the, the chants that the, the non-sultra uh, were singing. They've got the one which is the, the day February, which says Emiliano Sala, he's Argentine. He never gives up, Emiliano Sala, Emiliano Sala. It was all very moving. I mean, no one really cared about the game. I don't mm. think the players themselves wanted to play that game. Uh, there was far too much emotion. But I think it was a very fitting tribute to someone who was very special and who will never be forgotten. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of listeners, Jules, asking about Paris Saint-Germain's chairman, Nasser Al-Khalafi, who, who's set to join UEFA's executive committee. McLovin says, are PSG safe from sanctions now that their owner is on the UEFA sec- select committee? Pickford's left hand asks, how does someone who is chair of a club under investigation for breaking UEFA's FFP rules and who themselves is under investigation for bribery end up on the UEFA executive committee? It seems that it's two different things, that the financial fair play committee is some sort of... In- well, linked to UEFA but independent is in its own way mm-hmm. and UEFA have been very uh, quick I think yesterday to react and said to everyone who wanted to listen it's not going to affect anything in terms of the investigation on PhD the fact that Nasser is part of the, of the comics think? now I I'm You'd a bit more say. I'm a bit more <laughs> yeah I'm a bit more sceptical about that the thing with PhD I felt for many years is that uh, they were not good enough in the lobbying that they could have had at UEFA and uh-huh. that they were uh, always behind the other bigger teams in Europe and I, I you know I think rightly so they're not at the same level as the, the the big European teams but they felt like if they could you know get a bit more lobbying going on for them for them mm-hmm. that would help them and I think Nasser uh, is trying to do that by by being elected in the in the in, the, in that committee all uh, very nice for PSG at the other end of the table Leonardo Jardim back at Monaco, as you were explaining to us on Monday, and he's already had his first game in charge. How did it go, Jules? Not as well as he thought it would be. It was a League Cup semi-final away at Guingamp. Monaco went 2-0 up, a wonderful goal by Ronnie Lopez. And then it looked like the, the old Monaco was pretty much back. The Jardim was going to come back with a bang. And then Guingamp came back and he went to penalties. And Gagan won. So there's, there's two funny things in there that the two uh, Turam played against each other. So okay. The, Lilian Turam, his sons. Uh, Kefren, who is the Monaco 17-year-old midfielder, very probably probably better than his brother, Marcus, who's a striker for Gagan, faced each other. And it was quite funny in the penalty shootout because they were literally standing next to each other. I'm not really sure who they wanted to win, but it was quite funny. And the other one is that Gagan, their reserve goalkeeper, is called Marc Aurel Caillard, so as in Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. which is quite an unusual first name to start with. I mean, it's pretty, if you call Marcus Aurelius, it's, it's pretty cool, but could be daunting. But the guy is very, very good at penalties. So when the game went to penalties, and in the League Cup in France, there's no extra time, so you go straight from the, the 90th minute to the penalties, just before the end of the game, uh, Jocelyn Gouvenek, the Gengar manager, replaced his goalkeeper by Kayar to come on literally just for the pens like Louis Van Gaal did with Holland and, mm. and Tim Krul. And Kayar saved two penalties in that shootout, that, which means he saved now eight in the last three rounds of the League Cup where each time Gango won on penalties. Really? Which is incredible. And he came on for that, saved to obviously qualify this team for the final and a final that he's probably not going to play mm-hmm. unless... Obviously, they reached the penalties, and he would come in for that, I suspect. Wow. That... The problem is who replaces Marcus Aurelius, isn't it? Right. Is there a co- Commodus on their squad sheet? <laughs> they don't, but they could have one. Yeah. Monaco signed a Vinicius, for example. Right. Who, belong, who belongs to Napoli. Could really do with the Spaniard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And Monaco nice. Then... It, yeah, that's enough. No, no, no. no <laughs> I was just going to finish. Monaco won't play in Europe next season. That was the only way. Ah. They could play in Europe by winning the League Cup. Will they play in League 1, though? That's the question as well. Mm. In the Asian Cup, good lord, we're down to the final. Mm. It's going to be played on Friday. Do you know who's in it, James? Qatar. That's true. And Duncan, help him. Japan. Japan. Yeah, Qatar put out the host UAE, and there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Water bottles were thrown and shoes. Shoes, which is a big thing, as they uh, they crush the the host... I don't know. Uh, the throwing of the shoe. Mm. Yeah, a 4-0 victory for Qatar. They'll take on Japan, who overcame 
Iran 3-0. Right. Will you be watching that, Duncan? Uh, when is it Friday? That's true. I'll be watching it. Great. In Italy. Wow. 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 A midweek of cup madness. Okay, Juventus, who hadn't been beaten in Italy this season, got done 3-0 by Atalanta, James. They hadn't been beaten by an Italian side this season. Mm. They had been beaten in Italy by Manchester United, okay, yeah, yeah. Jose Mourinho. Right, fair, fair point. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I, to be honest, I don't think this comes as too much as a surprise. Um, a, considering the form Juventus have been in for the last couple of months, where they've been uh, getting wins, but been quite flaky at that. Um, but also because of Atalanta, who have just been so good um, in that time. And... Uh, I think they're going to win this competition. Do Van Zapata score? Didn't Will that get them into the Champions League? No. Okay. Can they get into the Champions I League? I think they can finish fourth. Yeah. Um, I just think um, they're much more consistent um, than than Roma or Milan. Uh, they've they've finished fourth in the recent past as well, when it wasn't enough to qualify for the Champions League as well, and they've got a better team now than they did mm. then. And Zapata, as you mentioned, he's, he's yeah, and uh, you know what. I, the, the big thing this weekend in for them. Yeah. <laughs> the big thing James this weekend in Serie A is that Fabio Quagliarella has the chance to break Gabriel Battistuta's record of um, scoring consecutive appearances mm. it'd be his 12th straight game with a goal but Zapata will probably will probably once once Quagliarella stops scoring maybe Zapata will overtake him because as yeah. I just mentioned he's got 10 10 straight games in all competitions in which he's scored he has to do it in the league um, to break um, Qualiello's um, burgeoning record, prop, uh, prospective record. But yeah, I mean they've been they've been brilliant, Atalanta. Okay, now um, the really shocking scoreline though was uh, Roma's trip to Florence, which Jules, I know you watched to take on Fiorentina. The scoreline there seven one. Uh, Stefano Pioli, the Fiorentina manager, afterwards saying this is the most magical night of his career. And I know it is only the copper, but it, it's still... I mean, in Florence, that's going to be just a night that's going to live long in, in kind of history. Yeah, without doubt. Um, Chiesa getting a hat-trick um, mm. as well. And what a start to 2019 he's made. He could have had a hat-trick at the weekend uh, against Chievo as well. Scored twice, hit the bar, um, and was involved in a couple of goals in that really good game against Sampdoria, which um, kicked things off again in, in Serie after the winter break. Um, look, when even Giovanni Simeone is scoring goals, you know you're kind of in trouble. Um, but what a night. And again, I think in light of Juventus going out later, um, what a missed opportunity, I suppose, for Roma. But not just them, but also Napoli, um, who went out to Milan uh, yeah. on Tuesday night. But yeah, uh, historic night for, uh, for for the Viola. And for one up, uh, Roma go down to 10 men because Edin Dzeko gets sent off and appears to spit at the referee. Appears. I, yeah. I think well, let's. I think we're gonna have to wait and see. There's one camera angle. Um, Was it sarcastic? Spit there. <laughs> yeah. Did he applaud as he did it? Um, I think we have to wait. And, okay, and we'll see wait on, on that. that. What about yeah. the the fate of manager Eusebio Di Francesco, who uh, Daniel Ekeroth asking, uh, can he survive this? They've got um, Milan at the weekend, and suggestions in in the, in the press that that's l'ultima chiamata. That this is where he either you know it's make make or break. Yeah, um, I think uh, this game against Milan is huge because obviously Roma are only one point behind Milan who occupy the fourth and final Champions League place. Getting into the Champions League is massive for, for Roma um, you know, because they don't have their own stadium. They don't have a lot in terms of, well, they've boosted commercial revenue over the last few years. Um, it's really been Champions League money and player trading that's that's kept things honest for them. And in, in that case, you know, I think... Di Francesco has made mistakes this year. Uh, I just feel that he's been let down a lot by um, some of his senior players um, and um, some of the youngsters who are beginning to come good mm. um, obviously needed some time to adapt. Um, but you look at the options available to um, uh, to Palotta and, and uh, the decision makers at Roma. You know, There was talk of Paolo Sosa back in December. Is Paolo Sosa really necessarily an upgrade on Di Francesco? Would people like Antonio Conte be interested? Um, when he was on that Italian uh, show last night, he did say that he's enjoying his kind of break from the game um, and he's he's still in legal dispute with Chelsea at the moment. So I think that would, that would be maybe problematic in that sense as well. Well, they have Milan coming up at the weekend. Milan, who beat Napoli 2-0 in the Cup. Both goals from the man who's replaced Gonzalo Higuain there. <laughs> 
Christian Pionte. And uh, fabulous goals. I mean, it, it just immediately illustrated the difference. Well, a long punt upfield, he collects and slots that away. The second goal, really well done. I mean, he basically does all the all the work for that on his own. Yeah, I think what was great about um, this um, starting debut for, for Piontek was he basically told the players um, before the game, uh, this is how I like the ball. Um, so just when you get an opportunity, hit it long and I'll try and run in behind. And that's what they did on two occasions. First one, he didn't really have much to do apart from finish. Mm. Second one, it was a similar situation, but again, he's still got quite a lot of work to do. And as you mentioned, manages to cut inside, I think, Koulibaly and bend it into the top corner and you contrast it with Higuain against Bournemouth yeah and I think I can make all the case I want that Higuain's a very good signing for Sally that they've got a really good relationship together and that sort of thing but you'd be rather you'd rather be signing someone who is well this is what Steve Malanga says why didn't Chelsea just buy Pionte (laughs) yeah I mean they got him for 35 million cash up front right um I suppose with with Chelsea they've they've only taken Higuain on on loan and he has to hit several targets for them to then extend that loan. So uh-huh. while they're taking on his wages, it is a cheaper, it is a slightly cheaper option at the moment. But Piontek, anyway, he looks like well, this the is, real let's, deal. Let's see when Piontek has no space to run into, though. That's the thing. Because at Genoa, it was easy for mm. Genoa to play like that because they were always, well, not always, but often the smaller team. Mm. And Milan... Against Napoli, it was the case. But when Milan would play a smaller team than them, that would play really deep and wait for them. Piontek won't have much space to run into, so he will have to play much more and do more and be more involved in the build-up play and the link-up play than right. just running and waiting for Lucas Paqueta to to put a long ball through. He may fancy his chances this weekend against Roma, though. Uh, the I way so. that, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. the the weekend looks like an interesting one. It's a weekend that will now be visible on TV after the collapse of or the partial collapse of of 11 sports who've renounced their, their rights to City for the rest of the season and Premier Sports uh-huh. have taken it over. I mean, contact them for details, but there's an introductory offer for people who were previously subscribed to 11. And I think they're, they're putting some games... I think, is it Napoli's game that's going to... The Napoli-Sam game that's going to be... Or is it Juve? No, Juve, I think, is going to be on Freeview this weekend. Yeah, I, I think they plan to show six of the eight games of the, of of the weekend obviously that some 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 of that will be tempered by blackout rule um, right. when when um games going certainly that. anyway free to air which is quite yeah. exciting but if you you know if you need your city hit mm. you just tune in to go that's on that's a, also on a Wednesday. true yeah yeah and uh, it's a great time to get a, a little bit of italian in in your life 37 goals scored last weekend <laughs> duncan that's a lot yeah, it is a lot yeah all right then uh, hey do you know what we haven't done? We haven't got odds on a lot of those fixtures that are heading our way this weekend. So let's hand over to producer Ben and his twice-weekly chat with Paddy Power. Thanks, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. And hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line as always. Lee, not much time, so let's get stuck straight into it. Give us the odds, please, on City versus Arsenal, the big game this weekend, probably. Well, it looks like the tight race is over, doesn't it? But we're still back in City to win this one. They're 1-4 to four to bounce back from the Newcastle shock with a victory. Arsenal, on the other hand, are trying the unusual method of plug-in defensive gaps with wingers and playmakers, which is probably why they're as long as 15-2 to two to get the win here. Liverpool are taking on West Ham on Monday. They're not in the greatest form at the moment. They're still grinding out results, but they do have a very good record against the Hammers. Can they score four? So, I'm not saying that league leaders Liverpool aren't a good team, but... I thought this was a surprisingly short price. Obviously, Wimbledon scored four against West Ham in the Cup on the weekend, and Liverpool were probably just about a better team than them. But I was still slightly taken aback by this. Liverpool are just 7-2 to score four or more goals against West Ham. And it could be a goal fest if our odds are meant to go by. It's odds on that West Ham score too. We've been hearing all about Newcastle's latest signing. Can Almiron get on the score sheet against Spurs? Yeah, I don't even support Newcastle when I'm excited about this. Expectations would be very high for Newcastle's record signing, but to be fair, it wouldn't take much of him to outdo the previous holder of that title. Assuming he plays, Almiron is 9-2 to two to score in his debut and really compound the misery of fellow South American Maurizio Pochettino. And finally, the Roy Hodgson derby, Fulham versus Palace. What's going to happen here? Claudio Ranieri has to see this as a huge opportunity to build some more momentum. It was a miracle midweek, and it's another massive chance to disagree of our odds that they're already down. But we are, of course, betting against Fulham this weekend. Palace are at home, they're in decent form, and they're 5-6 to six to win this. The Cottagers, as they are most weekends this season, are the outsiders. They're 16-5 to five to get the three points. 
You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, Monday, we'll see Totally Football Show return with Michael Cox, Daniel Story, and Matt Davis Adams. What does the weekend hold for you, Duncan? Uh, lots of football. Going to see if Plymouth's new commitment to uh, the beautiful game holds up. Okay, who are they taking on? I don't know, to be honest. But their manager. <laughs> their manager. So their manager last weekend, Derek Adams, was right. complaining that. Um, that Wickham were time wasted against them and was very vociferous. And it's his new campaign, so let's see. Is that right? Mm. They're away at Peterborough. Tough game. The posh. Mm. Jules, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to Paris. It's a boys' weekend for the Six Nation uh, France against Wales game on oh, Friday yeah. night. Yeah, so we're all going over. It's going to be messy. Look out, Paris. Yeah, indeed. Jules, but Jules doesn't drink. I mean, how no, do you fit into this rugby culture? The others do. Like, I, so I'd be the I'd be the wise one, and the others or my mates would be the, the messy what, ones. Are they English or French or what? They're all English. Yeah, right. English or Welsh. Okay, very good. And James, uh, I'm going to Carrington tomorrow. Okay, who are you speak to, to uh, Pepito Rossi as he. Uh, really? Uh, he's continued to make his comeback. He's training with Man United. He's really impressive, apparently. He's training as well. He's very yeah. good. So, How yeah. far away is he from making another comeback? Well, he, he's um, trying to get his, his fitness up now. Obviously, he's a free agent, so he can kind of go wherever he wants. But, um, yeah, United seem to be pretty happy with him at the moment. Uh, yeah, he was at Genoa at the, this time last year. And then I think he got banned for, for for doping, which he then managed to appeal and get overturned. Mm. Um, but his story is really interesting. Obviously, um, you know, obviously his background in the states, coming over to Italy really early, playing some for some of the top clubs. And then on Monday, I'm going to Rome, James, mm. unless situations change, because I've got an interview with Justin Cliver at Roma. Um, but whether they'll be letting journalists into Trigoria <laughs> on the Brian. back of. Uh, and maybe fish being thrown over the, the, the perimeter walls and that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So All right, then. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep across that uh, breaking story. So, and what about you, James? What are you doing this weekend? I don't know, Jules. You know, I'm just going to see what life rolls at me. Just going to surf that but wave not, of... But uh, not rugby. No, I don't think rugby, but, uh, but yeah, I'll, I mean, there's, there's so much great football. Were you not listening? It'll be all over that. Mm. Listener, do make sure you join us for our post-weekend thoughts. We'll be here on Monday. Many thanks to Duncan, Jules and James for being with us today. Have yourselves a great weekend. Ciao, ciao for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Thanks for sticking around, listeners. As promised, here's an extract from 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United, the new book by Daniel Storey, out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Day 207. You can't win anything with kids. It was one of the youngest teams that Manchester United had ever selected for a league game. Of the starters at Villa Park on the opening day of the 1995-96 Premier League season, four... Paul Scholes, Gary Neville, Phil Neville and Nicky Butt were aged 20 or under. Another two, in the same age bracket, David Beckham and John O'Kane, were substitutes, and Beckham came on at half-time. United were comprehensively outplayed by Aston Villa, beaten 3-1 by a team that had survived relegation by a single place the previous season. If the game became infamous in glorious hindsight, it was Alan Hansen, speaking on the BBC's flagship football programme Match of the Day, who gained most notoriety. With presenter Des Lynham labelling United as scarcely recognisable from the team we've known over the last couple of seasons, he turned to Hanson to ask just what was going on. The great Scottish defender, tanned and dressed in a light suit and tie, had his answer ready straight away. I think they've got problems. I wouldn't say they've got major problems. Obviously, three players have departed. The trick is always buy when you're strong, so he, Ferguson, needs to buy players. You can't win anything with kids. You look at that lineup that Manchester United had today and Aston Villa at quarter past two when they got the team sheet, it's just going to give them a lift and it'll happen every time he plays the kids. He's got to buy players. Simple as that.
Hansen's comment has gone down in folklore as one of the most memorable quotes of the Premier League era, maybe even more famous than Cantona's Seagulls Follow the Trawler. A book detailing the history of the Premier League through quotes has the quote as its title. While there is another published book with the same name, slightly bizarrely, there is also a book by writer Jim White entitled You'll Win Nothing with Kids. The misquote was presumably not deliberate. In terms of spectacularly bad predictions, only Michael Fish's 1987 insistence that talk of a hurricane was nonsense hours before the great storm killed 22 people and blew down 15 million trees in the home counties can outdo Hanson's for its lasting cultural resonance. Perhaps Hanson was being a little spiky because he was a Liverpool legend who reportedly enjoyed a frosty relationship with Ferguson, although Hanson later completely dismissed that idea. He failed to learn his lesson, however. His article on Manchester United's strife in the Daily Telegraph in 2002 provoked the My greatest challenge was knocking Liverpool off their fucking perch response from a clearly angered Ferguson. But Hansen is mocked far too strongly for his kids' assessment. If hindsight does indeed make his prediction look foolish, which of us hasn't anticipated something that never happened? Football's inherent attraction lies in its unpredictability, even to those who can claim to have been schooled in the game. It is a mystifying, magnificent sport. Every time you think you can foresee the future, football makes you look foolish. Manchester United were at a point of crisis at the time. That month was the only occasion on which Manchester United had not appeared in the charity shield between 1993 and 2002. Incredibly, it was only the second time since December 1992 that Manchester United had conceded three goals in a league fixture, the other being a three-all draw at Anfield in January 1994. Ferguson himself had privately conceded that he worried that his job was in some jeopardy. Failing to feel the warmth of support from either supporters or the club's hierarchy. Had you interviewed a selection of travelling fans outside Villa Park after the final whistle, they would surely have sung from a similar hymn sheet to Hanson. Supporters were concerned about rising ticket prices, but more angry that three key players had been sold with no replacements in the pipeline. Their club, these fans felt, was playing them for fools. If Hanson did go a little too far, he was not alone. Martin Thorpe, a Guardian writer, reflected the mood in print from the ground, describing a team that had been overrun, outthought and even outclassed. Perhaps after the nightmares of Cantona and Kanchelskis, defeat at Villa Park struggles to register on Ferguson's internal scale of shock, he wrote. But as an exercise in proving his point, Saturday could hardly have been worse for the United manager. Forget the loss of Ince, Kanchelskis and Hughes, he told the fans. Have faith in the youngsters. Well, here was the first result of his theory. 3-1 to Aston Villa and 1-0 to the critics, who warned him he had got it wrong. Hansen was unconvinced about Manchester United's chances of winning the league title and his insistence that Ferguson would have to spend was proven wrong. But United's team against Villa was missing Ryan Giggs, Steve Bruce and Andy Cole, as he acknowledged. Those three would all start 30 or more of United's 38 league games. Meanwhile, O'Kane would never play another league game for United. Scholes started only 16 league games in 1995-96 and Phil Neville only 21. So in some respects, Hanson was right. Ferguson could not simply pick all of his academy crop and expect to win the league. That line pretty much made me, simply because I got it so dramatically wrong. Hansen said, in 2012. But despite being so dramatically wrong, if United hadn't won the double that year, you could still say that line now. I could have said it ten years later, and it would be relevant because it is a fact, but what happened with United was a one-off. I just said it at the wrong time. 